Our challengers today are Kyone Wolf, who works for Public Radio in Connecticut, Dave Dickerson, who sells nutritional supplements to weightlifters in Illinois, and our eight-time champion from Maryland, Todd Zagusta, who lives off his girlfriend, who works two jobs. And here are the categories. Roast beef. Wolverine movies. I would totally hit that. Thursday night football. And do my armpits smell. Kion Wolf, you'll lead off. Go ahead, pick a category. Any category. Alex, I really hate to complain, but is it possible that these categories are weighted toward men? I mean... I just don't see anything up there that a woman would know or care about. Uh, let's not jump to conclusions. Do my armpits smell for 400 could be an answer based on a Jane Austen novel. Is it? Well, no. Well, uh, how about roast beef? How is that even a whole category? How could there be even five things to ask about roast beef? You just think that because you're a girl. Uh, that proves my point. There's a subtle male bias to Jeopardy. Women have to work harder to earn less money. And what does that remind you of, Alex? Uh, real life? Exactly, and that's one of the topics on the scramble today. And now, the guy who got the answers ahead of time on bowling for dollars, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it wasn't really part of the big quiz show scandals because uh, there are no questions asked on bowling for do dollars. But I did know the answers in case anybody ever did ask me. But it wasn't sort of a Van Doren type thing. All right, we're going to talk to Amanda Hess today. She's one of our favorite writers, and she writes often uh, about uh, how women are perceived uh, in mass media. She's a staff writer at Slate. Uh, we're glad to have her back today as our super guest. Amanda Hess, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So uh, we are going to talk about Jeopardy uh, first off, and because you have written about that um, uh, on Slate.com. Uh, and so the, we begin with the question, is there some reason to suppose that women are in some ways, second-tier citizens uh, on Jeopardy? Is there some reason to think that? I think that point is indisputable. Um, so one thing that points to that is that women appear on Jeopardy less frequently than men do. Uh, it's not clear why, um, whether it's sort of interest in the show or the number of people who actually pass the test to make it there. But there are about 39% um, of contestants over the past, a uh, few decades, uh, and from there, they've won about 30% of games, uh, so less than you would think based on the number of women who are actually appearing on the show. And then the other thing is, uh, when they do win, they win less money. Do I have that right? Um, I don't know about that. Uh, one sort of point in contention recently was how much money men and women bet during daily doubles. So Alex Trebek was on Fox News a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "Actually, you know, Amanda, West, Amanda, we can actually yes. provide you with um, uh, with Alex Trebek more or less in person saying this." Wonderful. Women contestants, when it comes to a daily double, seem to want a wager because they figure, "Oh, this is the household money, this is the grocery money, the right. rent money." Hmm. Guys say, "Wait a minute, I'm playing with the house money. I'm not taking any money home unless I win the game, so I can go." whole hog on this wager. And women are more cautious in that regard. But it's changing. We have attracted more women to the show. Now I think there are more women playing Jeopardy on air than there are men, and that's good for us. And they're getting a little more adventurous when it comes to wagering. All right, Amanda, case closed. Let's move on to our next topic. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. So, Not quite. Yeah. Uh, so what we did at Slate is, is we created a script to... Uh, 
basically analyze uh, the data that is available on something called J-Archive, uh, which lists all of the questions and answers, all of the bets wagered for almost every game ever played in Jeopardy. And what we found was women only very, very slightly bet less than men do as percentage-wise. Uh, one reason it looks like they bet less is because they generally have less money when they get to a daily double to bet. Uh, and while women have been betting a little bit more over the past decade than they have, you know, in the history of the show, men are also wagering more than they used to. So um, one of the arguments goes um, that that one of the re- I mean, obviously, if there are just fewer women contestants right away, you got a problem. Um, maybe he's correcting that uh, as time goes by, or they're correcting that as time goes by. But one of the other arguments that one sees about this is that. Um, the questions are kind of male-oriented. I, I read one article about this in which, uh, for example, there, there were two different dates on which authors were a category. So that means a t- possible of 10 total answers. Nine of those answers were the names of male authors. The 10th was, was Maya Angelou. And, and that other instances were cited in which somehow or other knowing a lot of dudes' names would be more useful to you than knowing a lot of women's names. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think that's certainly a possibility. We also know that men vastly outnumber women in the Clue writing room, which must be an exciting place. Uh, (laughs) So the people who are writing uh, the Clues are are mostly men. Uh, And when I posed this question on Twitter, after I did my uh, little pseudoscientific inquiry into what men and women are wagering, I asked the question, you know, why are men better at Jeopardy than women are? Because they seem to be. And someone sort of succinctly said, Jeopardy is a game invented by men for men to compete against men. Men are going to be better at any game like that than women are. So uh, it's possible that it's it's just sort of a, uh, you know, a problem that's always been there and is not really going to change with that game. Well, you know, and so that wouldn't be that big a, necessarily that huge a problem. It would be a problem, but maybe not that huge a problem. But as uh, one of our guests uh, here last week uh, mentioned uh, in a meeting on Friday, and it's, we're going to do a whole other show about this, there really kind of are only two two game shows left. There used to be like a lot of game shows. Now from seven to eight, you've got Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. That's about it. The two guys who are running it are getting kind of on in years. It's hard to imagine what's going to happen uh, when they're all done. But, I mean, it, gets, it sort of does matter more when there's – Therefore, since those are the only two, there's only one, you know, active adult human intelligence based game show that anybody knows about. And it's Jeopardy and it's unfair to women. It's true. And, and you know, in, in one sense, it's just a game, obviously. But in another way, we're so fascinated by Jeopardy and we want to know what makes people good at it. And when we come away saying, well, one thing that makes them a lot better is that they're men. It's sort of it's a a bit of an uncomfortable place to land when this is sort of our public cultural measure of intelligence. Um, yeah, I think it's also true that many of us, I would be one of them, uh, when we watch the game, watch it with our significant others. Um, I, I often do quite well, you know, in just sort of shouting out the answers before any contestant can do it. And if this information gets out to my significant other, either your article or this interview, um, I'm toast. So. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say that I, you know, would not be one of the people including or uh, increasing gender parity and jeopardy. I'm pretty bad at that kind of stuff. So. 
not well, going to be me. It's really it's a, it's a really interesting issue anyway. And Amanda Hess, uh, you're here to talk about one of the things we do on Mondays is invite one of our favorite writers or commentators to talk about things that he or she is interested in, uh, and then we get interested in them too. And it's usually not all that hard, and it wasn't hard today. So uh, we've got a couple more that we may be covering. Um, maybe we should talk first uh, because. Well, actually, you know, you know what we'll do? We'll talk about the another sort of mass media gender disparity that you and other Slate writers were exploring. And the question was, is there some way in which Jennifer Lawrence, the movie star Jennifer Lawrence, and the newly minted Lupita Nyong'o movie star, whom we celebrated here on the show last Monday, um, have been placed in kind of some sort of celebrity steel cage that that only one of them really can be the so-called it girl. Um, This might sound on the surface like a fairly frivolous discussion, but um, underlying it, there do seem to be some, once again, kind of interesting questions about whether mass media processes women differently than it processes men, right? Right. Again, you know, like Jeopardy, the Oscars are such an interesting cultural stage for us to examine gender more widely. Uh, And uh, so at this year's Oscars, Lupita won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar that Jennifer was also nominated for. And after the ceremony, Jennifer Lawrence sort of jokingly attempted to steal the Oscar away from her. Uh, And it was sort of a, a very pointed moment, because even though Jennifer Lawrence can joke about this, uh, it's true that Hollywood, you know, seemingly every year anoints a new it girl. And the point of the it girl is that there can only be one. Uh, And sort of one of the things that that Slate's other female columnists and I were talking about is how this is a problem that tends to only happen to women, that there seems to be more space for male celebrities and and, uh, less chance of a of a backlash happening to them after someone else gets successful. I, I wonder if part of it, just to sort of enlarge the discussion and be a, a male voice in this conversation. And by the way, the, the, this thing was presented, the subject was presented in a very interesting format where Amanda and a bunch of other uh, women writers for Double uh, X Factor at Slate, you know, each sort of, uh, it was sort of a, done almost kind of conversationally with everybody kind of chiming in in different ways. And in fact, Willa Paskin, who was on our show last week, was one of the other uh, people chiming in here. You know, when, in reading it, I was trying to figure this out. And of course, you know, there's sort of a golden bow quality to all this. Or, you know, you're, as Euripides said, uh, whom the gods would destroy, they first make celebrities. Um, and so there's this kind of idea that we build somebody up so we can kill them at the end of some kind of celebrity agrarian cycle. Um, on the other hand, the difference between one other difference I think might be that men, male celebrities, can sort of stay around in the teeth of horrible kinds of criticism of them or or taunting of them that would really be very destructive uh, to a woman. I'm thinking, for example, at the Golden Globes this year where uh, Leo DiCaprio was introduced by either Tina Fey or Amy, Amy Poehler, who said, whose joke was, uh, and now, like a supermodel's vagina, let's give a warm welcome to Leo DiCaprio, which was a sort of sexist joke in two different ways, and which I laughed at, but I can't even imagine framing a joke like that uh, about a woman performer. You think about the joke that Seth MacFarlane made one Oscar ago about George Clooney and, and who he dates and that kind of stuff. It's sort of like, you know, in a way that mirrors our real-life interactions where men can say really horrible stuff to one another and it kind of doesn't seem to matter all that much or somehow or other life goes on. Um, you know, if that were done about a woman, maybe because their status is so much more perilous or imperiled, um, it, it just couldn't happen, right? 
Right. I mean, it's it's interesting how, uh, you know, a comment like that can sort of roll off Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and in fact, his dating history, you know, uh, is seen as a badge of honor of anything else. Uh, where if you look at another celebrity who is known for having dated a lot of people, Jennifer Aniston, the narrative about her isn't that she's a playgirl uh, and she's so fancy because she's slept with all these men, but that she's a sad person. Um, they're about the same age, um, and that she can't find someone to love her, and no one will marry her, or whatever. So it's a very much a, a different type of narrative when it's applied to to men and women in Hollywood. To me, the sadder thing is, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not ultimately convinced that it matters who the id girl is, but maybe, maybe it does. I'd like to think that there's an expansive enough universe so that Jennifer Lawrence and Lupita Nyong'o could both be have wonderful careers and be uh, cherished for for their gifts. Um, what, what has been sadder to watch for me has been uh, the way as actresses move a little bit further into maturity, the the roles for them, the good roles, just sort of aren't there, and and really. You know, Hollywood tends to do the same thing with older actresses than that, uh, that you're describing here with younger actresses, which is that for a long time, Meryl Streep was the only actress who could get good roles for mature mature women. There there weren't enough of them anyway, and in terms of bankability, she was seen as the person who who could get them. So there was. For example, a great actress uh, kind of of her generation named Kate Nelligan, who almost disappeared even though she was a candidate for some of those roles. I think the uh, the Julia Child role was initially envisioned for Joan Cusack. But it's like Hollywood doesn't trust anybody except Meryl Streep to carry uh, a big, meaty, semi-serious literary uh, role. And so nobody else gets those jobs. I, I would love to see 15 years from now, you know, five or six actresses being able to, to have that kind of work. Yeah, me too. Um, and I think one of the sort of uh, sad aspects of the it girl phenomenon is that I think a lot of women feel like they're competing with other women just because there are fewer roles, you know, in society for women than there seem to be for men. And that's particularly true in Hollywood for older women. One of the sort of interesting aspects of this, when I was writing about um, Kim Novak, as we know, um, appeared at the Oscars after, I don't think, having been seen in public for a very long time. And she had had extensive plastic surgery. She's in her 80s. And she was ruthlessly mocked for this, uh, which I thought was so interesting because obviously, you know, everyone in Hollywood, as Ellen DeGeneres joked that night, is trying to look younger because they're told that that is like the most valuable thing for a woman to be. Um, But then you look at someone like June Squibb, who entered Hollywood as an older woman who seems to have been sort of embraced for fulfilling this sort of role as an elderly woman. I think she's in her 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't have, she seemed to have sort of skipped the part where she is denigrated for aging because she sort of came in as an older person. If you look at Meryl Streep, even she, you know, she had a period of time uh, where she was, you know, getting not very good roles Mm -hmm. um, when she was sort of transitioning from ingenue to uh, sort of her, you know, unassailable role now as the one older woman in in Hollywood who gets great roles. Uh, So I think a lot of people are sort of forgotten by Hollywood and some of them manage to sort of come back, but it's very, very few. Well, that might provide us with a segue to our final topic here, which is, uh, and people may have seen something about this over the last few days, um, 
And, and, and June Squibb is a nice segue because, of course, she also plays the uh, thought-to-be-dying grandmother of Lena Dunham uh, on Girls. Uh, and so I'll make this connection in just a second. But I, we wanted to talk a little, a little bit about yet another effort, hardly the first effort, to um, make and market a girl doll, a glamorous, a somewhat glamorous, attractive girl doll who nonetheless is not Barbie, does not have all the unrealistic proportions and standards of perfection suggested by Barbie. This would be a, a doll who, who is, to my understanding, not on the market yet, but who would be known, I guess, as Lemily. Is that how we're supposed to pronounce it? Lemily? I believe so, yeah. And so this is a doll invented, of course, by a dude, Nikolai Lemily. Uh, <laughs> so tell us about Lemily real quick. Uh, so Lamely uh, is known colloquially as Average Barbie. Uh, it is a doll that is based off of uh, average measurements of an American 19-year-old girl. Uh, So that means that she is shorter than Barbie. Uh, She's capable of standing on her own. Uh, She actually has a waist. Uh, Her breasts are smaller, et cetera. Uh, So it's, um, it's meant to sort of provide a more realistic counterpoint to the unrealistic physical standards that a Barbie might present to young women. She also has, as they say, some junk in her trunk. <laughs> she doesn't need. Um, I don't know if I can say that on public radio, but I just did. Uh, so, Amanda Hess, I, I don't know. I mean, as you point out in your article about this, this isn't the first time something like this uh, came along. And, and this one, uh, he seems to be just trying to raise enough money uh, to, to take another shot at it. Does it, does it matter? Is it important to get some, another doll like this out? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you draw a parallel to Girls, because Girls is a show that has been widely acclaimed for challenging uh, sort of physical expectations for actresses on television. That's why I drew that parallel. (laughs) Right. Girls is one show of dozens and dozens of television shows that do this, and so it's been able to sort of find a small niche where it can be successful and do that. If you look at the world of dolls, they are overwhelmingly... uh, ruled by Mattel. Uh, Barbie is number one. Um, Some of the other sort of most popular dolls are also owned by Mattel, including Monster High Dolls, which is a sort of fun group of dolls that's based off of um, uh, horror characters. They're also extremely thin. Uh, American Girl Dolls are also uh, run by Mattel, and they have a bit of a more um, realistic body shape. And so when you're presenting you're sort of offering this new sort of independently produced doll it's not like an independent tv show there's no like no there's no opening in the doll world (laughs) for this to like hold have any sort of cultural attraction so while i think it's fine and it's fine for you know the few parents who want to buy it to buy it i really think the problem is that mattel which is an extraordinarily powerful corporation is not budging uh, when it comes to the way that its dolls are designed. Amanda Hess, justice will be served when a Lamely becomes a doll, appears on Toy Jeopardy, and beats Mr. Potato Head and G.I. Joe. Then then we'll have justice. But first of all, we have to invent Toy Jeopardy, which you and I could do and make a considerable amount of money. So let's have that uh, be our next project. It's been so great to talk to you. We love your uh, coverage in Slate, and I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, We will move along. We're going to come back and tell you about the most amazing dog dragnet in at least my recorded memory.
on that train. Why not? It's like so cool. So over the weekend, uncharacteristically, I promise, I passed through the same Starbucks twice. Uh, the one on Bishop's, at Bishop's Corner in West Hartford. And each time, well, the first time I was kind of in a hurry, but I could see over in the northwest corner uh, of the Starbucks uh, at one of the long tables, there was this kind of command center that had been set up. There were a lot of people there engaged in some kind of massive group effort. There were a lot of laptops open. There was a lot of paper being passed around and stuff like that. And I didn't have a lot of time, but I, I swung by long enough to see that it had to do with two missing dogs uh, and an attempt to recover them. But it was a much more organized and, and multi person effort than anything I typically seen. So happened I was at the same Starbucks on Sunday, the next day. Uh, the command center was there again. And once again, this pretty uh, elaborate effort going on, much more coordinated than anything I'd ever seen. Groups of volunteers being dispatched to various locations, uh, things being uh, appearing to be mapped out on laptops. Um, when the volunteers were being sent out, they were usually uh, handed uh, some kind of container of aromatic dog snacks uh, to further uh, enhance their chances uh, of finding the dogs. I got kind of interested, so I wandered over and stuck my big fat nose uh, into what was going on and, and learned a little bit more about this. It, it is a remarkable story. I mean, dogs get lost all the time. Posters go up. Uh, people try to help out. But I don't think I've ever seen it happen on quite the scale that it's happening here. So joining us now is the owner of the two dogs, Amanda Dennis, uh, an assistant professor of communications, which may be significant, at the University of Connecticut. Amanda Dennis, I uh, wish we were talking uh, under happier circumstances, but uh, both of your dogs have been missing for for a few weeks now, right? Yeah, it's been about a week and a half now that they've been missing. And when we say been missing, these aren't just dogs who uh, jumped out of the car and ran away. Your your home was broken into. Yes. When I was at work one day, I came home and I found out that my house had been broken into. So there's a lot of uncertainty about the whole situation. I have for a long time assumed that they ran out during the burglary, but I don't know if they were stolen or taken. Um, so I'm trying to follow every possibility I can. All right. And so these uh, dogs are named Zuzu and Burton. Um, ex- yeah. Explain what it is you did. I mean, I, I think it, you're going to have to do a little bit of describing just so people get get a sense of the scale of this operation that you've mounted here. Sure. So when they first ran away, um, I had a lot of friends who helped me put up flyers, but we really wanted to get the word out on a larger scale because we didn't know if they were taken. And if they were taken and put in a car, they could be honestly anywhere in Connecticut or the Northeast for that matter. So we reached out to some people um, in the media who helped spread the word, and then it was really suggested that I make a Facebook page for them. I guess there's a whole section of Facebook called Find, and then you put your pet's name. And my friend told me about this, so I created a Find Burton and Zuzu page. And then I just started inviting all of my friends and having all of their friends invite all of their friends. Um, And then it just it really grew from there, and people have been calling me from all over the country, all over the state, and just crying with me and offering to help, and and that's how the effort started to come about for these past two weekends now that we've really been organizing and trying to send everyone out to look. And just sort of by the numbers, uh, I think when we spoke on Sunday, you cited a pretty uh, astonishing number of shares for the initial uh, notification. Yeah, so the most recent flyer that we created has been shared over 30,000 times, and that's only from our page. So I don't know if, you know, when they're being shared through other people that keeps getting passed on more. So the numbers are probably even greater than that. But that's just what I can see from my end. Um, you know, in this little command center at Starbucks, you had a lot of people working on a lot of different things. I guess another thing I was noticing was it seemed as though you were using um, laptops and stuff like that to coordinate the search a little bit more tightly. In other words, getting tips 
and the, and then dispatching people out. And I, I assume somebody's using Google Maps or the equivalent of that to, to kind of pinpoint some of these locations. Yeah, one of my good friends, Chris, has been helping a lot with this whole effort. He is more familiar with some of the mapping technologies. So what he started to do is to um, save screenshots of maps and then actually divide up basically everything within a five-mile radius of my home into zones. And so part of what we did is to assign people zones to go flyer, and then as we got sightings and tips about where they might be, we would mark off zones and have people kind of take specific areas um, to go see if those tips were true and if we could spot them. Um, the One thing that you did, I saw on the Facebook site, um, was you said that you in the morning you, I think maybe you and Chris were going to go out and do what you referred to as a bacon burn. Uh, yes. Tell me, tell me. I don't mean to be laughing because I know this is a super serious uh, situation for you, but t- tell me about a bacon burn. Yeah, so we did two bacon burns. We did one Saturday night and one Sunday morning. And it's basically what it sounds like. You you slow cook bacon. We, we messed up a little bit on Saturday night, and we actually burnt the bacon and put it on the fire. But we got it right on Sunday, and we, um, we slow cooked the bacon over in Keeney Park mm. because that's where we were having the most reports of seeing dogs, uh, loose dogs or stray dogs up there. So we slow cooked the bacon, and the whole idea is that that smell gets into the air and then lures them to the location where you are. Um, and unfortunately, I haven't yet found my little babies, but we, we were successful in helping a few other dogs um, make it back home or make it to the shelter yesterday. So it seems like the bacon burn does work for getting, you know, animals out and about and even to the park. Yeah, I think my dog Ralph uh, tried to head over there. Um, <laughs> I and think we saw a coyote as well. Yeah. We were a little concerned. <laughs> if you find, get Ralph, you can just keep him. You don't have to bring him back. Um, <laughs> the um, and so, the, But this is an interesting thing, that all of this work that you're putting in here, I mean, you you have reunited some other people with their dogs, just not your dogs yet, right? Yeah, yeah, and it feels good, and it feels like good karma. Um, we have we found a few along the way. I haven't completely heard the updates from yesterday, but I know there was one that when I let the animal control officer know we had found a dog of this description with a certain bandana, she actually said, oh, wow, that owner just contacted me yesterday to let me know the dog was lost. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping I find mine eventually, but in the meantime, it feels good that at least all these people who love animals and are coming out to help me are also helping other people along the way. It, it's amazing how far out this is all reaching. I'm just getting a message from Kion Wolf, who's producing on the on the board right now. She writes, yesterday I was waiting to get off exit 43 and was planted right next to a car with that flyer, with the Burton and Zuzu flyer. Um, how, in terms of this command center that you set up at Starbucks, how many bodies are, are out there? I mean, we, we know digitally we can get sort of a general count of some of these amazing numbers, like 30,000. How many human bodies are, have volunteered and have gone out to, to look around for these dogs? I say since they went missing over the past week and a half, we've had at least 100 volunteers. Um, I think that would be safe to say uh, from all over. I mean, a lot of them are are local or within 30 minutes, but I've had people who drove down from Springfield yesterday, from Boston, um, and, you know, it's just it's amazing how wonderful people have been in helping, especially as, you know, I have my ups and downs and I lose hope. You know, someone will show up who drove two hours just to help me search for an hour or two hours, and it just makes me hopeful again that I will find them. And these are not necessarily people you knew, right? These are people who discovered this the way people discover things? Oh, yeah. The the vast majority of people I never met before a week and a half ago, Um, and yet they're crying with me. They're calling me to check in to make sure I'm eating and sleeping. Um, They're dropping off baked goods and and food, and the generosity is unbelievable considering these people were strangers to me just 
two weeks ago. Well, even I know you have a cold. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and so I, I, the obvious question is, okay, you're an assistant professor of communications at University of Connecticut. Um, you, you, your work, I've read some of your work, it's kind of in a different area. And believe me, uh, when all this is over and you are reunited with your dogs, we'd love to do um, some segments with you on your actual academic work, which really looks interesting. It's exactly okay. the kind of thing that we do on this show. But that's for another day. But do you think in any way is your approach to this either dictated or at least influenced by the job that you have or maybe just the digital generation that you're from? I definitely think it is. Um, I mean, my area of research is not as much with social media that a lot of my colleagues are, so I spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about things like organizing on Facebook and sharing on Facebook and how these stories become a big deal. Um, And also, I mean, a lot of my own work is about relationships, and so seeing how social media can be used to build relationships and, you know, seeing it firsthand in this process has been fascinating. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely been of interest. I was just telling someone today that it, at the day that I lost the dogs, I was giving a lecture on uncertainty. And now I find myself completely immersed in that experience. And it just, you know, you don't think when you're telling your students about how difficult it is to deal with uncertainty that within a few hours you're going to find yourself in the most uncertain state of your life. So I've just been thinking a lot about how the things I study all the time are now playing out in my in my world. Um, the reward for this uh, the, on the posters that I've seen is $2,500, which is more than is typically uh, offered as a reward for, for, for finding a dog. What's the reason for such a high amount? That's all thanks to the donations of people. Um, it wasn't even, I would never ask others to give money towards this, but someone had suggested that they wanted to donate and want to set up a way for others to donate. And it has been unreal how generous people have been with not only their time but their money and helping to get that reward up so that people would be tempted to help look for the dogs. Because as much as I'd like to believe that everyone looks, loves dogs as much as I do, um, the fact is some people, they really don't care about the dogs. They do care about the money. And if that's what will motivate them to help find mine, um, then I just wanted to, to give as much as I could. And so... That's really, again, thanks to the volunteers and the organizing online and, and setting that all up. Uh, we're talking to Amanda Dennis. She's an assistant professor of communications at the University of Connecticut. More significantly at the moment, she is at the center of a dragnet for her two missing dogs, which is being done at a pretty amazingly uh, complex and sophisticated level. One of the things, I mean, eventually when you go back and study this or somebody else studies it um, as an issue in communications and digital media, I mean, there's also sort of a signal-to-noise problem. And if you make the, the, the reward number big, you know, yes, you do motivate suddenly a whole bunch of people who are really interested in $2,500 more than they would be in helping somebody with a dog problem. Does that mean that your phone is just kind of ringing all the time with people who think they've seen something and just really, you know, are taking a shot in the dark, kind of uh, hoping that maybe it's going to be a jackpot for them? Yeah, you know, I actually thought that was going to happen a lot more than it has happened. And at first we just put large reward and we didn't put put an amount. Um, And then we put the amount to really help motivate. And I've gotten more calls since then, but... They have not been, um, you know, as random as I expected. A lot of those calls have been related to the other dogs that we have found as well. Um, and so surprisingly, I, I have not been bombarded with nearly as many calls because of the word as I thought, which to me I hope means that that means that people actually care and they're not just going to call or try to, you know, mess with my head or anything like that. 
Well, uh, I, I certainly hope and uh, and believe that this will all end on a happy note. We should say the Facebook page is Find Burton and Zuzu, all one word, Find, B-U-R-T-O-N, and Zuzu. Uh, you want me to give out your phone number? I don't know if people will write it down, but you want to give out the tip line or something as, as we as we break away, Amanda? Sure, yeah. If people want to give me a call, that's fine. My phone number is already out there, and it's yeah. on the Find Burton and Zuzu page. Um, it's just 973-865-4004. And if you have any information at all, even if you haven't, you don't have the dogs, any tips or ideas about who could have them or where they could be, any information right now has helped me deal with this uncertainty and to process this all. I just have appreciated so much from everybody. All right. And we will uh, post all relevant links and information about how to participate in this dog hunt uh, at WNPR.org. Amanda Dennis, good luck with that. Just very quickly before we break away, uh, we're going to talk about FOI uh, legislation when we come back and the latest challenge to it. I want to mention again, we'll be at the New Britain Museum of American Art tomorrow at our regular show time, 1 p.m., for a show that I think you're really going to enjoy on typewriters. There's an exhibit on, of typewriters there. But typewriters are so interbred with the uh, the industrial uh, history of Connecticut, um, stories of labor strife, uh, stories of, of fires. There, there's, there's a lot of history that is the typewriter. And the typewriter really was, for many years, just kind of a, a huge symbol of Connecticut's industrial supremacy. It was something that the state did really well. But, of course, these days also, I mean, typewriters are a, on the one hand, things that many millennials uh, have never seen uh, or things that members of Generation Y wish they had one of just to sort of have it. It's become kind of a hipster artifact. There aren't that many people who still actually uh, compose writing on them. Woody Allen and the historian David McCullough are the two that are most often cited. So anyway, come see us at the New Britain Museum of American Art tomorrow or tune us in at 1 o'clock the way you usually do. I think you have to pay regular museum admission to get in and hang with us. But hang with us, you will. And then you can go see that amazing museum my dog is lost come home come home my dog is lost let's see helicopter check a hundred flashlights check volunteers check 15 laptops. Check. What was that? It was in his car. All right. You can all go home. Colin found his phone. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Skylar Magnoli, the man who played Alex Trebek in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, who is Greg Hill. Katie Tularski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ken Jennings. For articles, show pages, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff luring a lost dog with succulent herbed pork loin chops with raspberry sauce paired with an insouciant Pinot Noir, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, we're live from the New Britain Museum of American Art for a show all about typewriters. And now... Back to Colin. So sitting with me is a man who's going to have a very busy day today. His name is Claude Albert. He is the legislative chair of the council, Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information. It's also, it was also my privilege for many decades, more decades than either one of us cares to admit, uh, to work with Claude as an editor at the Hartford Current. The reason your day is going to be busy today, the reason we're recording this interview, in fact, a little bit earlier on this Monday as opposed to at 1 o'clock when our show runs, is that at 1 o'clock you are going to be trying to do two things at once. You're going to be trying to go to two different legislative committee hearings on essentially the same topic, right? Well, uh, yes and no. I, I will make both if I can, but uh, luckily CCFOI uh, has a president as well as a legislative chair, mm-hmm. and uh, if I am tied up at one hearing uh, – 
he will undoubtedly uh, be able to testify at the other. The problem essentially is is this, this, and, and I'm sure you can summarize it better than I, but just to get things started. So towards the end of the last legislative session, uh, the legislature passed without much warning or hearing or anything like that, um, an abridgment of the Freedom of Information Act, which applied to uh, homicide photos and, and uh, 911 calls and stuff like that related to homicides, with the understanding that they would then review this policy, see whether or not they'd done the right thing or not, so they convened a task force. That task force has made recommendations. And I'll let you pick up the story from here. I mean, one of the concerns is that the recommendations to this session of the legisla- legislature don't really restore our Freedom of Information Act to its former robust health. Yeah, that's right, Colin. Um, to restore the uh, act to its former st- state, you would have to uh, basically repeal the act that was passed at the end of the last uh, legislative session and just leave it at that. Instead, the task force has come uh, out with some uh, recommendations for changing the access rules to uh, pictures of uh, of homicide victims, as you said, and uh, to 911 tapes and other police communication tapes. So what we had was a law in which the presumption was that the public would have access to, to public documents, including these, including homicide crime scene photos, 911 tapes, whatever. They were all part of this enormous ocean of public documents to which we have access unless the government can prove a, a compelling reason, uh, as enumerated in statute, why we would not have access. Here, the burden, I mean, based on the task force recommendations, the burden shifts a little bit, right? The presumption isn't necessarily that we have access. In fact, in these cases, it's sort of the other way around. We'd have to prove there was some reason why we should have access. Yes, and that's one of the things that uh, most concerns us at CCFOI. I should point out that uh, in trying to to strike the balance between personal privacy and uh, the public's uh, right of access to materials to hold the criminal justice system accountable, Uh, the task force did recommend, and this is included in this bill, that the right of an individual to inspect these documents should not be abridged. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go to your local police department and ask to hear uh, the 911 recordings uh, or see uh, the pictures. But if you want to take away a copy and if you're media you and you want to uh, broadcast these uh, 911 tapes or, or uh, put them on your website if you're a, a newspaper, you will need to uh, overcome several obstacles. And it's not – I mean we should say, you know, although the media probably would be the most uh, intensely affected by this, it could affect any number of people. The way that I understand the recommendations to be written and the likelihood of a, a law raised up from these recommendations or a bill raised up from these recommendations, imagine that you were the sister of a woman who'd been murdered and you didn't think – that the police had done the correct job and you think maybe the suspect even had uh, some sympathetic figures on the police force and you wanted to have access to and make use of all kinds of documentation to support your claim in whatever forum, whether it's a public forum or whatever. You might have a struggle. You might be unable to get those things because the people who would make the first decision about whether or not you would have access to those would be the police who, under those circumstances, might have a real compelling reason not to give them to you. Right. And it would be uh, difficult, if, especially if you were not the actual next of kin. Mm. The police, uh, when they believe that uh, access to this or copying of this material represents an, a, quote, unwarranted invasion of personal privacy, 
they're required to go out and talk to the next of kin uh, of homicide victims or to all people who have who are taped on a 911 recording and see if they have any objection to the copying. If they do, the police will not release the materials and the person seeking them will have to go to the Freedom of Information Commission to try to get access. And this touches on the area you were mentioning before. One of the most troubling aspects of this bill from our point of view is it reverses the burden of proof for gaining access. Now the person seeking access will have to show that the public good warrants access rather than the government having to show that the matter is not of any public interest and outrageous to a normal person. But the so-called Perkins test that we've used in Connecticut for a long time to judge invasions of privacy. And we we think that uh, that shoe should not be put on the other foot, that uh, the public should not have to defend the value of transparency and the government should always have to justify uh, the rationale for secrecy. Um, and this isn't just a flash in the pan. I mean, there really have been a, a series of incursions upon and attempted abridgments of the freedom of information law and other kinds of open government, transparency-oriented laws and governmental structures in the state over the last two or three years. There's another one that will be considered today um, in, in at least one of the, the committees that you guys are trying to double-team right now. That's House Bill 5481. What this does, as far as anybody can tell, is create a new kind of administrative hearing officer so that uh, the Freedom of Information Commission or some of the other watchdog agencies that are now grouped under this central organization, the Office of Government uh, Accountability, decisions of those panels could then get kicked up to this new hearing officer who would be appointed by the governor and could, who could be fired by the governor um, and who would apparently be in a position to review and possibly overturn decisions of the Freedom of Information Commission and some of these other agencies. Also a little worrisome. Yes. Uh, this is a real head-scratcher, Colin, because it resurrects all the uh, controversy and issues uh, that we went through last year with uh, the attempts to consolidate the watchdog agency, or maybe it was the year before. It attempts to. Well, there have uh, been two different waves of them. Yeah, to consolidate uh, the watchdog agencies uh, and uh, and their staffs. As we read this present bill, the uh, Freedom of Information Commission and the other watchdogs would lose their control over most of their professional staff and the conduct of the of contestant hearings, which really is the core function of the Freedom of Information Commission. My understanding of the history of this is that, you know, this bill is born of an attempt to improve and regularize and professionalize some of the contested hearings at other state agencies. And uh, it's been offered for several years, and the watchdog agencies have always been uh, excluded from mm -hmm. the bill. Uh, why they were thrown in this year and um, – I have really uh, no idea. It seems to come from the administration, right? It's a bill that's actually raised by the government administration and elections committee. It does not have a named legislative sponsor. And so I'm guessing it actually does come from the Malloy administration as opposed to from the uh, I, I don't know. It is raised by the committee, as you say. I, I know the CBA, the Connecticut Bar Association, has been active in trying to improve this contested hearing process uh, for years. So I, I, I don't know yet uh, what the hand of the uh, administration uh, is in any of this. One of the frustrations of this whole process, of this whole you know, mini era 
in considering all these things is quite frequently when the legislature, when government agencies or the legislature, particularly the legislature, is acting in these matters, acting in matters that do substantially affect the freedom of information law uh, and, and do significantly impair our ability to understand what's going on in government. They're either violating the letter or the spirit of the, of the freedom of information law as they do it. So in other words, you know, the initial law that 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 abridged freedom of information as uh, respecting these these crime scene photos and, and 911 tapes was done kind of in the dead of night with very little warning, which is sort of the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish here with freedom of information. So in order to monitor what they're doing to our FOI laws, you have to be prepared for the fact that they will not act in the spirit of those FOI <laughs> laws when they're messing with them. Yeah, well, you know, uh, legislators and Congresses always have the power to exempt themselves from their own rules. CCFOI has been urging uh, GAE and the, uh, the legislature for years to, to sort of self-impose a rule that uh, impairments of the Freedom of Information Act will always get a public hearing before before uh, they're enacted. But uh, these so-called midnight amendments uh, still creep up uh, almost uh, annually. Well, you know, and it's sort of be careful what you wish for because now today you've got two public hearings. And that <laughs> sort of brings us uh, full circle to the beginning of our conversation because, in fact, what's happened here – and let me just sort of back off and say that as a former Hartford Current legislative reporter under the occasional supervision of my guest today – you know, I know how sessions work, and the sessions are long, and the committees meet a lot of times usually. This is a short session as opposed to a full session, but it's still – it's a pretty long session. It goes on for months. And and so there are multiple opportunities to have public hearings and schedule things on bills. It just so happens somehow that the government administration and election committee is meeting at the same time as the Judiciary Committee, each for the purpose of considering the, the subject matter basically that we're talking about right now, which means essentially that – all of the people who care about this, all of the people who, who are worried about transparency and, and don't want to see it curtailed, either have to put on, you know, Wiley Coyote, Acme jet skates and go back and forth or divide their forces in half, right? Yes. Uh, the committee, uh, the GAE committee chairs uh, tried to put the best face on it by saying, well, it saves uh, interested parties from having to go to the Capitol twice uh, to testify uh, on the same bill, which I suppose is true. Well, I mean, just uh, uh, but, an answer but, to that would be, be they could have scheduled one meeting at 1 and another meeting I mean, at 2.30 or 3, and then it would be one trip for everybody. But when you schedule them both <laughs> at the same time, it tends to look like you want to water down the efforts of each side. Yeah, I really, Colin, I have no uh, insight into, uh, <laughs> into uh, what the motivations of this. It may have been just completely by uh, – by happenstance, uh, though they did have the opportunity to uh, change uh, the schedule and thought otherwise. I think one thing that it's fair to say is that one of two things is going on. Either, in fact, there are a lot of people up there who really don't like sunshine legislation, don't like a lot of the reforms that started in the post-Watergate era uh, and have continued to this day uh, and are trying to water them down as much as possible, or there are a bunch of people up there who just have no concept of cosmetics or optics. They don't understand how these things look. And so thing after thing after thing seems like an invitation to paranoia on our part. So, I mean, like yesterday when I was reading the text of this new bill, 5481, as you say, it may be an outgrowth of a long process within other parts of the government to kind of streamline and professionalize this hearing process and, and get people who are trained as hearing officers to hear things hear things like in public health and stuff like that. Although there, there's some real questions about whether even that's a good idea. But the fact that it suddenly applies to the, these watchdog agencies 
for whose survival a lot of us seem to be constantly fighting, or, or at least fighting to make sure that they're not so starved of oxygen that they can't function. The, the fact that it just happens over and over again, it really does. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm starting <laughs> to get paranoid. Well, yeah, I can understand that, Colin, uh, especially uh, – uh, you know, since the Freedom of Information Commission is not in need of uh, further help on this matter, they have a very good staff. Uh, they're admired nationally and uh, and beyond, really. Uh, they're professional. They're efficient. They they handle hundreds of cases a year. Uh, they handle their own appeals in court all the way up to the state Supreme Court. So they're not among the agencies that need to be upgraded in this way. And uh, – you know, there has been a years-long now, it seems, assault on uh, the Freedom of Information Act that involves sort of more than the sort of annual little nibbling away mm-hmm. here and there at, uh, at obscure provisions or uh, minor deletions from the public data bank. There have been really some uh, – a lot of proposals that uh, go to core principles uh, over the last couple of years. Luckily, I think we've been able to fend most of them off. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Uh, vigilance uh, seems to be constantly required. They're like toddlers at Pottery Barn. <laughs> if you take your eyes off them for a second, they'll pull them some things down off the shelves. Claude Albert is the legislative chair for the Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information. He's got to go. Put on those Wiley Coyote roller skates. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Colin. And thanks to everybody who helped out today. That's the end of our show. We're going to be back tomorrow live from the New, New Britain Museum of American Art for an entire show about typewriters, which is going to be more interesting than you just thought it was when I mentioned it to you.